you to take your Bible and turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 9 is where we return this morning. Exodus chapter 9. This morning, we're going to study, well, we'll endeavor to do this, the largest portion of the plague account. Five plagues. That is half of them indeed in these next two chapters. Very ambitious, but we certainly can do that because much of this is by way of reminder. Elements that we will see today are very familiar. So we will recap and be reminded as we move along. There's no need to linger on some of these pieces because it's just a building theme and a theme we've uh, looked at the past two weeks. As well, though, and as we've seen As we go with each plague, each progression, God's word teaches us something new. And we'll see that again today. So with that, let's just dive back into this account where we left off. Look at the end of chapter 8. We've covered four plagues to this point over these four chapters. Remember, blood, frogs, gnats, and flies. The last one flies, God said this. Look at chapter 8, verse 21, as we reorient to the text. Remember this, verse 21, chapter 8. This is the warning to Pharaoh, or else, if you don't let my people go, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. That was the last plague we looked at. But then look at this in verse 22. Remember this. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites are, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. That's an important contact point as we get back in, because remember, we noted the contrasting places of those that don't know God versus those that do. And this was something that was introduced in this last plague, and we pick that right back up as we jump in. The reality of those very different places continues, and it becomes a growing reality as we hurdle toward the last few plagues. And the contrast in knowledge becomes a clear distinction. And that's our next point. And again, we just continue right on now with the distinction of not knowing God. Let's turn our attention to this fifth plague, beginning in chapter 9. I'll read it in full. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. What immediately stands out there is what's familiar. What's familiar? We've seen this before. Look at the first verse. Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. 
That is deliverance, remember, liberation for the purpose of serving the Lord. So important, not just deliverance for deliverance sake. We have noted God's redemption is never just to free us onto ourselves. That's not what it is. Ephesians 2.10, we reference that. There's a purpose, right? The good created for good works onto God. That's, that's the purpose, the grand design, the grand decree. And we talked about that last time. Again, the Lord repeats that fundamental purpose of redemption for his people. Also, look in verse 4. God states that in this next plague, he will again, and here it is, picking up this theme, make a distinction. A distinction between Israel and Egypt. A distinction between those that are his people and those that are not his people. So clear. God's people are protected from the flies. And here, God's people are protected from livestock death. That is distinct. It cannot be clearer. Distinct from those not God's people, Egypt. And what we're going to see today is that they're judged. And we continue to see over and over again in these plagues that they are judged in this distinction. Finally, by way of what we've seen and what has become a pattern, verse 7, look at it. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So familiar. That refrain is just so familiar to us now. Pharaoh's heart disease continues to plague him, and he continues to refuse. Now, let's make some comments on what is new. What is new in this fifth plague? First, most obvious, we see a new indictment on the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians had a variety of cattle-oriented gods. Kind of made my head spin this week with how many they have. Isis is the god queen with cow horns. Maybe you've seen that depiction Hathor, the goddess of love with a cow's head, most likely in view here is the god Ta and his sacred bull, Apis. The sacred bull was worshipped and sought, and here it is, here it is from Ta, livelihood. They went to this god for livelihood. Keep us going. So key. Well into the afterlife. So much so, reading about all these discoveries this week where they dig up these tombs and what would they find? A sacred bull head that would represent livelihood into the afterlife. That was their hope, a bull head. Contrast that to what we've talked about already. A bull's head, make sure that's with you in your tomb for livelihood well into the afterlife. So sad. And so this plague, a divine declaration against Egypt's so-called God of livelihood. Secondly, and related to that, God's judgment in this fifth plague begins to get more personal. Did you catch it? Now there's encroachment. The first four plagues touch the environment in Egypt. Blood water, pesky animals, attention getting... Attention getting, but the most stubborn might even say annoying and painful, but not yet costly. Here, look at verse 3. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock, your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Now, I want you to catch this. Not every single animal will die. And you'll probably track with that as we go through the others. That's not what this is saying. Instead, who will die? Note it, the livestock of the Egyptians, the ones that are in the field, the ones that are bringing livelihood to them, those are the animals that are going to die. In other words, the most costly animals to you, Egypt, personal loss, 
the ones that gain you sustenance and livelihood, those ones will die. Now, again, we have to note this. The divine megahorn is now blaring loudly. And listen to me. Personal loss always does that. Is that not true? Personal loss always is a wake-up call. And yet, distinct to that, it's as if to say, your God... Your bull God will not save you, but you know who will be saved? The Israelite livestock. Thirdly, by way of observation here, notice the Lord's address in the very first verse. So key. We don't want to gloss over this. First time he says this, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Wow, an intimate and personal name used by Yahweh here, the God of the Hebrews. This is used here to sharpen the distinction between the people of God and those not of God. Pharaoh, let me be clear, God says, I am the God of the Hebrews. I am their God. And church, it's incumbent on us to pause for a moment and feel the weight of that title. That same God of the Hebrews, look at it. I am their God, God says. That same God of the Hebrews is your God today. You know that? That's your God sitting in that seat. Wherever you are, this is your God. Beloved, I ask you, can you be encouraged by that distinction today? Thousands of years later, this is your God. That intimate protection given to Israel and Egypt is given to you today. No matter what other judgment is happening, you are intimately protected by this God of the Hebrews, by this God of the church. Acts 20, 28, note it. Paul says this to the Ephesian Gentile church, elders of the church. He says this, pay careful attention to all the flock, care for the church of God. That is not just association, but that is possession. We are God's called out ones. Beloved, in fact, we are the ultimate possession of God. This is amazing. A gift from God the Father to God the Son as a bride, betrothed in eternity past to Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to that in Ephesians 5, 32. We are the bride of Christ. Could there be more intimacy than being the bride of Christ? Talk about protection. Church, we are God's people. He is our God. As such, and mark this, In wrath, in judgment, we are untouched. Can you be more safe than that? You will not experience the wrath of God, church. We are safe from harm in the only safety ultimately you want to need. To be safe from the wrath of God. Why? Because we know God. We know God. We are his. Praise God. Yet that is why, as you look around today, so many seek safety. I would submit to you, what is going on today? The world melting is nothing compared to the wrath of God. Yet people want safety from the lesser. And all today, we're seeing disobedience to the creator. Like Pharaoh here, who of course, in spite of the growing intensity the Lord is bringing, Pharaoh is unchanged. Is that not familiar? It doesn't matter how much carnage keeps happening, he is obstinate. No way. Not only does he remain hardened, but he remains blind to the very clear reality of his world and his kingdom being turned upside down. That's why Pharaoh in the Exodus account is a cliche, right? 
His world is being turned upside down. He's like, no, no, I will not let my, or your people go. No. And thus, because he stands there so stubborn, so hard-hearted, as everything's being turned around, this is your picture, and it sets us up for the next point, the next plague, the disorder of not knowing God. Pharaoh, his kingdom just completely disordered. We consider the next account. Look in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The Egyptians, you look at this account, and we get another plague. Think about what's going on here. They worship a god called Sekhmet, which was the god of plagues and healing. Again, it's just incredible and astonishing how many gods they had for everything. This one in view, the God of plagues and the God of healing. He, Sekhmet, protected them from plague and pestilence. Consider that. We have a God for that. He will protect us. However, clearly he's not protecting them here. And again, it's at this point, right, that you see the powerlessness of their gods. And here against this skin plague. Boils, by the way, think about that word boils. That's a skin disease. It's just painful to say it and think about it, right? Skin boils, let alone in reality. Of course, the reality of this skin disease is front and center in Egypt. And that is because the hand of the Lord, here it is, has brought boils on them in judgment. In fact, consider the same context. And this is judgment. And how do we know? You consider Deuteronomy 28, the judgment for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, you get this chapter where the first 14 verses are the blessings for obedience. And then you have over 50 verses on judgment for disobedience. Over 50 verses for covenant disobedience. And then this one, listen carefully. Deuteronomy 28, verse 27. Here's the judgment from the Lord. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt. In other words, what they got, you will get for disobeying me. And with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. You feel that? That's the judgment of skin disease. Not only on Egypt, but later it will be for covenant disobedience on Israel. This is, beloved, judgment for disobedience That we see in Pharaoh's court here. And no one aligned and under Egypt is spared. Do you note that? No one's spared. Most notably, look who returns. The magicians. They reappear here, but for the last time. We won't see them again. This is their final appearance. But note the progression of these magicians, right? And let's be reminded first of their role. Remember, these magicians were the high class of Egypt. These were the authorities. These were the ones with their conjuring with the power and control, supposedly. Remember of these magicians in plagues one and two, we saw Pharaoh parade them out to demonstrate that with their so-called power. Do you remember that? Oh, we can do this with blood and we can bring frogs down. Yet by the third plague, you're only at the third plague. They not only could not replicate 
But note this from chapter 8, verse 19. What was the confession of these revered magicians? Chapter 8, verse 19. They say this, these signs and wonders, is the finger of God. We're magicians, but we're telling you, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, Pharaoh, your top men concede. For the past two plagues, they've been off the scene only to return here. And in verse 11, notice that this is what kind of re-entrance is this with this confession? They can't even stand before Pharaoh because of the boils. Pharaoh, you want to say to Pharaoh, your go-to men are plagued. Forget power, forget prestige. These magicians can't even stand up. They can't even stand up and see this. Not only them, this is pathetic. Look at the end of verse 11. All the Egyptians. The plague has affected the skin of everyone under Pharaoh. And beloved, look at it. This is the disorder of not knowing God. You are okay as your magicians fall and your people get boiled. And you're just fine. What kind of leader stands and is okay with that? That is disorder. This is the enduring picture, in fact, of disorder. And look at it most pointedly in verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Pharaoh, whose heart was declared hardened by God, chapter 4, chapter 7. Pharaoh, who in the second plague hardened his own heart, now once again had his heart hardened by the Lord. Or has it, in this case, hardened by the Lord. Here, a strengthening of Pharaoh's desire. That's really behind that word. He just strengthens this desire that Pharaoh has to be against the Lord. And that's the reason that this account continues and why now it intensifies into our next plague and point, now the devastation of not knowing God. You can just feel the intensity building, Right? These next two plague accounts, by the way, are not only the longest, but they're like a one-two punch. They really come together as one. Really, things are culminating now. Let's read the seventh plague in full, and it speaks for itself, but we're just going to give it a, a, a treatment here, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. 
Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then he had this, Pharaoh's reaction, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Wow. Verse 29. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emmet were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. You know, at this point, as you consider that play, we do not need to mention the repeated elements again that we've seen already. They're there, even more vivid as they compound one another. Let's, however, note how the plagues have now moved to a new level of intensity. This is what we need to see. Consider how God describes this seventh plague. Look at verse 14. This is key. How does he describe it? For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. That's an interesting word there. God says, I will send all my plagues, or as the NIV reads, the full force of my plagues. That captures it. In other words, in these final few plagues, you will feel the full force of my might. What a warning. And Pharaoh, by this, you will not only know me, but also look in verse 14. You will know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now we have to note that scope. Note the scope. Yes, Pharaoh, there is purpose in this that even goes beyond your kingdom. The same thing repeated in verse 16. Look at it. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, there's so much more to say there. That reference pops up in Romans, and we're going to look at that next week. God is doing so much more than this little postage stamp corner of the world at this time. There is a greater cosmic purpose here, but again, more to say on that next week. God unveils the first half of the devastation with this. Verse 18, behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause, look at it, very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Look at it closely. God says there will not just be hail. There will not just be heavy hail. There will be very heavy hail, the likes of which have never been seen. It's recorded even to this day. Cairo and the regions around the Nile get maybe two inches of moisture, of rain each year. Maybe two inches. Can you imagine the phenomenon of having hail? 
You talk about a force of God, a finger of God. As such, you can imagine the impact of hail on a moisture-barren, unreadied people. They know of no such things. Spiritually, ancient Egypt would have felt protected, though, by the God of the skies. Here's another one. Not the God of the skies. Another God in whom these pagans put their trust in. Everything from the skies was through Nut's hand, and he protected us. But here, that God of the skies being judged by the Lord, powerful. And mark it, hail, like boils, a plague of judgment that's not unfamiliar in the Old Testament. Do you remember God brought hail on the five Amorite kings? Do you remember that in Joshua 10? What about the hail on the false prophets in Ezekiel 13? And of course, on Ephraim, the northern kingdom. God's people themselves in Isaiah 28. Hail not unfamiliar is a tool of judgment by God. In those judgments, though, you don't have the mercy of God that's unveiled here in panoramic view. Look at verse 15. This is incredible. For by now, God says to Pharaoh, listen to this. By now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Did you catch that? This is a mercy of God. What is he saying to Pharaoh? Pharaoh, you don't know who you're dealing with. Did you see that? He says, I could have struck you dead right now. Pharaoh, by my mercy, this is continuing on. And you know what's amazing? There's still more mercy to come. But God reminds Pharaoh, I could strike you dead right now. It could be all done. Now listen, Pharaoh may not heed that, but clearly some of his people do. Look at verse 20. Then whoever, note the language, feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So much we could say about that. They don't fear Yahweh, but they fear Yahweh's word. Just the threat of disaster, right? So whether or not they truly feared Yahweh, we don't know. But they did fear the threatening word that hail was coming. Subsequently, the Lord brings the hail. And verse 25 describes the devastation. Look at it. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt. That is, man, beast, by the way, not the possessed animals necessarily, plant and tree. Whatever remnant was left on those crops and stalks would be dealt with next, by the way. Pharaoh would awake after that hailstorm, after verse 26, to devastation unlike anything he had ever seen in his kingdom. And as a result, let's be crystal clear on this point. As a result of what he saw, as a result of the circumstances outside him, He responds with this in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I, my people, are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. So much we can say about those two verses. Do you notice what he says? I've had enough with the thunder and hail. You see where his emphasis is? I've had enough with external circumstances being terrible. I've had enough with my life being turned upside down. That's what I've had enough with. Not with my stubborn heart. I'm just fine with that. I just don't like the hail. Amazing. Westman, I would submit to you, even with that faux confession, if you read this for the first time, 
You don't even have to wonder about what's going to happen next. You don't even have to wonder if this is a sincere confession by Pharaoh. Is that not true? You don't need plagues 8 to 10 to know this guy is just blowing words, blowing smoke. Yes, because Pharaoh's track record speaks for itself and also does, beloved, also does the word of God. So clear. The word of God speaks and indicts responses like this. We see this again and again and again. We've commented on this before, but the text begs the repeating. Joshua 7, we saw this from Achan. Matthew 27, you saw it in a man named Judas. Acts 5, you saw it in a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. All in some form, in some version, say what? With their hand in the cookie jar, I've sinned. Yes, I've sinned. And my life is upside down. Yet all of them, even upon a confession like that of Pharaoh here, demonstrate, here it is, the worldly grief, the worldly and empty sorrow described in 2 Corinthians 7.10. As the Apostle Paul writes, the worldly grief produces what? Death. Every time. Worldly grief produces death. And of course, that is precisely where we're headed. That is precisely what's going to happen to Pharaoh in this worldly grief very soon. And note that Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. That's quite a confession, isn't it? This time I have sinned. You want to say, really? This time, Pharaoh? What about the other times? This time? Is it because of the hailstones? Is it because you really have had enough? This time you've sinned and you haven't before? That tells you something. Pharaoh says, and this sounds really good. I want you to just capture how many times you've maybe heard this around you. The Lord is in the right and I am in the wrong. That Just drips of piety, doesn't it? The Lord is in the right. I am in the wrong. We all know this type of sorrow. Circumstantial sorrow. Grief that truly, really, grief that is underpinned, not with sinful recognition, but selfish protection. We know that sorrow. You say, but his words sound so sincere. Right? And maybe you've heard people confess that to you and say, I'm really, really sorry. I mean, I really am. I will never do it again. I'm so sorry. A Christian shouldn't do that. But yes, listen, it always sounds good. Words, as you see today, words always can be crafted and doctored to sound very good. And they're very convincing. Mark it, beloved, please. If you are tempted to be fooled by Pharaoh's words, let's look at a preview. Go to the next chapter, verse 16. We're going to cover what's going to happen next. There is another plague, but this is the result of the next plague, which, by the way, comes on Pharaoh. Why? Because he genuinely was repentant? No. His heart was hardened. And look at this preview in verse 16 with that carnage. Then Pharaoh hastily, well, now he's got legs, called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Is this deja vu? Verse 17, now therefore forgive my sin. That sounds good. Please, only this once and plead with the Lord for your God only to remove this death from me. So much more we could say, but it speaks for itself. One more comment on this plague. Look at verse 30 of chapter 9. Moses says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Moses says this, and can you just not picture it now as we get this growing picture of Pharaoh? Moses stands there, this shepherd in the king's court. Imagine, he says, leader, king, Pharaoh, you don't fool me. 
You don't fool me, Pharaoh. Fancy words and all. You don't fear Yahweh. Not at all. And that is because Westmount Market, to know God is to fear God. I mean, I can't say that enough this morning out of this text. To know God, to truly know the Lord, to truly know Yahweh, to have intimate knowledge, to say you know God is to fear him. And as we say, to fear him alone. To fear him alone. And Moses here basically saying to Pharaoh, you certainly don't fear Yahweh. You may claim to know God, you may claim to repent before God, but you have no fear of him. Yes, after these seven plagues, you still do not know God. And verse 35 proves that, the hardened heart. Beloved, fearing God is not just when you are desperate. Isn't it incredible? Many of you know part of my testimony in 9-11. I was one of those people. I had a lot of fear after 9-11 because there was a lot that was fearful for, right? Just like today. But I didn't yet fear God. God used that to draw me, but that's very different. Fearing God is not just this reactive emotion when the world's falling apart and you're desperate. That's not, and people say, oh, give me God. No. And, and more, knowing God doesn't stop when the hail stops. Do you see that? Knowing God stops. All of a sudden he gets respite and the hail stops. Well, you know what? I'm back to my kingdom. Verse 33. No, Pharaoh. And I would say no, friends. To know God is to fear God. To know God is to fear God. In all domains of your life. Not just that could I want to live my life and possibly there could be these bad things after, but just let me live my life. That's not fearing God at all. Fearing God recognizes what you deserve at every second of every day. And by the mercy of God, having the hand of God restrain it. That's to know God. A healthy and right fear of God knows, there it is, beloved, what it deserves. A true fear of God knows, here it is, both God's justice and God's mercy. As such, real, authentic fear of God never goes back like Pharaoh does here. Remember, this devastation is a one-two punch. There is a second half, incredibly, of this devastation. The eighth plague. Let's consider that one. Just the first six verses here to look at it in chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. They may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. We need to stop there to make a couple of important observations before we go further into this plague. The first one is the nature of it. Do you see that? The locust. The locust. The locust 
as you might know, is a devouring insect animal. That's what it does. It devours and covers. And as you consider the scene here, you might ask this, well, what's left to devour, right? That's a logical question. What's left to devour? There's been so much devastation. Good question. Look at the end of chapter 9. This is where every detail in God's word is so important. Look at verses 31 and 32. You see it probably bracketed in your translation. And there's a reason. Look at it. The flax and the barley were struck down, right? This is with the hail. For the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. So it was blooming. But then look at this. But that's not all of it. Look at it. Verse 32. The wheat and the emer were not struck down. For they are late in coming up. Ah, there's still pieces of these stalks. There are still things to be devastated. You know, one can picture the Egyptian going out into his hail-damaged fields, right? And like, oh, the tops are off, but you just see him running his fingers over the little emer and saying, ah, but at least I have the wheat. I'm all right. At least I've got the wheat. It's in but I'm going to be okay. No, no, you won't be. Not after the locusts rip through that devastated field and take whatever's left. Look at verse 5, and let's be clear that they take everything. They shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And look at this. They shall eat what is left to you after the hail. Do you see that? So whatever was left, whatever remnants there, the locusts got them. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. In other words, nothing is left. This is absolute devastation. There's absolutely nothing left. Like other locust judgment plagues in the Old Testament. Think of Joel 1 and... Amos 7, all similarly depicting this coverage, this infested land, a ravaged land. And again, don't miss that Egypt had no answer or no protection here. Don't miss this. Senahim was their great pest control god. I almost had to chuckle this week. Like, really? They have a pest control god? One that controls them? It's true. It's their Orkin-esque god. It's incredible. God's for everything because that's what you have to do. When you don't recognize the true God, you need a God for everything. Is that not true? If you don't recognize Yahweh, you need protection for everything. And that's exactly what we see here. He was, Senahim, was supposed to hold back the locust and the grasshopper. Amazing. Again, Egypt has a God for that. Make offerings to him for protection and help. Senahim will hold them back. But of course, it's Yahweh that unleashes them. And of course, as we've seen, there is no help from a false god, right? That's just impossible. You can't get help from something unreal, right? I think we can fall into that trap. Something works of fiction, things that are unreal, things made up, things propagated. There's no help in those things. Secondly, the second note is this incredibly multifaceted purpose of these plagues. Do you see it? The the purpose, God's cosmic purpose, is like this jewel that we're now seeing all these other sides of. It's just fascinating. God has already given the purpose for Pharaoh, right? That's the overarching thing. By this you shall know, so that Pharaoh would know. God has stated multiple times that the purpose of deliverance for his people is to serve him. But here, look at verse 2 for another. This is so helpful. It's almost as if God, in verse 2 of chapter 10, turns through Moses to speak to Israel directly. And he says this, That you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Not just Pharaoh, not just the whole earth, Israel, my people, that you may know. We cannot miss this. That is Moses. That is Israel. That is my people. And not only that you'd know, but did you catch it? That you would tell of me. 
That is children of God that you would not only pass it on, but that you would know me in that passing on. And because you know me, because it's authentic, you will tell of me. You will tell of me. Now, the weight of prophetic import of this one verse, just simply this morning, cannot be overstated. As the passages, as the pages of the Old Testament unfold, we will see, and you know this, how does Israel make out with passing it on? Did they pass that exam? What kind of grade does Israel get in terms of passing on Yahweh? I mean, it just speaks for itself, but it does beg a reminder. In just a few chapters, we're going to have the Passover instructions, which are specifically designed as a memorial to remember, right? Remember, remember, remember. Book of Deuteronomy, you have an entire book given for what? Remember, don't forget, remember, pass it on. Generation after generation, what is the pathetic theme in the judges and the kings? What makes it so depressing that they don't? You want to say when you're reading those, right? And you know, in your devotions, like, don't you guys know, like, look at what just happened. Did you see what your dad did, king? And right, this goes on and on. You have entire Psalms, Psalm 78, given so that God's people would remember and pass it on. Exhortations, pass it on, Israel, pass it on. Yet exile looms and God's people are too consumed with the luxuries of Canaan. There's far too consumed. There's too much distraction to pass on God. And God knows the wicked heart, not just of Pharaoh, but of his own people. And, and so this is a reminder for us too, over and over again, tell your sons, tell your grandsons, church, my people, tell of me, God says, tell the generations following you of my power and might, tell of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to ask how we, also as God's people, have fared with that. How have we fared with passing it on? I, I need a whole bunch of restraint here, but the current state of the church demonstrates how we've passed it on. It is just stunning to me what I see and read every day, and people wonder what's wrong with the church. Beloved, I'm there with you. We, we have not passed it on. Don't be shocked at what the church is unwilling to do in these days when we don't pass it on. There's been far too much that's got our attention in this blitzed world than to pass on God to the next generation. Anyway, I digress. We consider the rest of the account. Back to verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Isn't that incredible? His servants are now pleading with Pharaoh. You know what? Be done with it. Can you just let this man go? Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? You talk about disorder. Your kingdom is in shambles. So, verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? This is Pharaoh up to his old tricks, right? Okay, go, but. Here's my little clause. Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast of the Lord. In other words, what do you mean who's going? We're all going. Verse 10. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Here it is. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. This is the red herrings, the distractions. All of a sudden now, in the eighth plague, you're so concerned with who's going to go? No. Verse 11. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand. In other words, I'm not 
buying those games from Pharaoh. My command was explicit. Let my people, that's all my people, let them go. And that's why then you have verse 12. Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Grab that picture. Such a dense swarm of locusts had been never seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field though all the, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. God's mercy, by the way, you see that there in verse 19. God's mercy just as sweeping as his judgment. Do you see that? Not a single locust gone. Every single sin forgiven. Every last little one. Isn't that encouraging? The little details in God's word. Not one piece of judgment will remain. Not one nagging little bit over your head. All gone. All forgiven. Oh, Pharaoh, if you could only see. Pharaoh, if you could only see. This time, the postscript contains protests from Pharaoh's own people, verse 7, which we commented on. Again, Pharaoh offers, and this is being kind, a half-hearted release plan. This time, quibbling about who should go, men or families, as we said. Pharaoh has mastered, mastered the art of partial compliance, which anyone in authority will really tell you, partial compliance is not obedience at all, it's really disobedience. Unless it's fully complying, it's disobedience. There is no measure in between. All of that to say as we consider the overall scene again, nothing has changed. Even after the Lord's powerful display of might, the widespread devastation, even after the Lord's mercy to turn the wind and drive market every last locust away, even his mercy to do that, Pharaoh's still refusing to let God's people go. And as a result... This is just logical then. The next step, which is logical, the darkness of not knowing God. The darkness. Let's read this ninth plague. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Incredible. You just can't give it up, right? Verse 25. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. In other words, Pharaoh, we need everything. Remember, we're going to have a feast. We're going to worship, not just little ones, flocks. Verse 26, our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. 
And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. You know, as I consider this plague and as you're looking at it now, it may be difficult for us to fully understand this plague. You think, this is the ninth plague? Like darkness? The, the ominous threat of darkness. It's difficult for us to understand it in context here. For one, in our society, and I say this with multi-layers, we have just become comfortable with darkness. Is that not true? We're just comfortable with darkness in every way. We cheer ourselves with so much artificial light, blue light, all kinds of light, right? We just cheer ourselves with it. You know, when I was growing up, kids were afraid of the dark. You remember that? When kids were actually afraid of the dark? Now they love it. They love the dark. They're drawn to it. But in ancient times, for ancient people like Egypt here, darkness was, and this is hard to grasp, but grab it, darkness was, for ancient Egypt and ancient people, truly threatening. I mean, dark, darkness was a menace. Traveling at night was deadly. You just didn't do it. If not certain robbery, you were one misstep away from those well-worn paths to death. And you couldn't risk that. Couldn't risk the horse or the donkey taking one misstep. It's all over. It was far, the night and the darkness was just deadly. In fact, for many in ancient times, they equated darkness with death. There it is. I was reading this week how ancient people understood that, and I quote, darkness was essentially chaotic. Isn't that something? That's what they thought. Darkness by nature is chaotic. And here it is, a kind of enemy of the safe and the good. That's what ancient people believed. Do we think that anymore? No, we run for the darkness. Even more for many civilizations, including God's people, darkness was considered a grave punishment from above. That's telling. As such, you can imagine how people like Egypt treasured the rising sun. They got that, like many of us do today, especially in the winter, right? That sun, when it's just beaming in the winter, you treasure that. But of course, we leave it there. Egypt took it a step beyond that, like all things. And of course, there was a God for that. But here is one of the mightiest gods, Amon-Ra. Amon-Ra, the mighty sun god, the mighty creator god, the god of gods, we could say, I mean, no sun Egypt for three full days would have been absolutely terrifying and the implications would have been dripping on those Egyptians. Where's Amon-Ra? Where's the sun? Can you imagine the sun not rising in these days? If there was a plague that would vividly illustrate the judgment and the finger of God, this is it, the ninth plague. One commentator offered up a very realistic thought pattern from Egypt this way. I appreciate this and I just quote it in full. He says this, quote, this would be like an Egyptian in like that first, second day of darkness. If this keeps up, there will be no food because plants need sunlight to live. All animals, all my animals will die because the food chain requires plants. And soon, here's the implication in darkness. We will die because everything we live on that lives on light will be gone. Unquote. Isn't that scary? Yes, that was true, and that is the point of this ninth plague. Death was imminent. It was knocking at the door, and the darkness heightens that. And note this, Westmount, this was not ordinary darkness. Look at verse 21. This was a darkness. Look at the imagery, to be felt. This is, grab this, a real gripping darkness. 
that's just right there all around you. It was interesting, if you were to keep reading from those curses in Deuteronomy 28, here is another curse from God, again, to show you where this is truly coming from in judgment. Verse 29 of Deuteronomy 28, You shall grope at noonday when the sun is at its highest. At noonday you shall grope as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. What an image. Noonday, high heat of the sun, and you will be blind. That is terrifying. The heart of this plague, at the heart of this darkness, is this reality, beloved. This is darkness that completely shuts down your sense of sight. It's gone. You don't have it. You're in darkness forever. That's blindness. And here is your picture, a darkness that will require groping around. And beloved, can there be a more fitting picture for the one that does not know God? Is, it, is that not true? Groping around. No, no God, no transcendence, no moral, absolutes, nothing. But you're just groping around trying to find something to fix your life and hope on. Because you reject him. And darkness abounds today. That is exactly what you're seeing today. The masses groping around for something to hang their life on. They're groping around in darkness in the noonday sun, but they're blind. What's right? What do we do? What do we put our hope in? Trying everything, stumbling, rambling, not making sense. And here is where Isaiah 5 just comes to life. Listen to this from Isaiah 5.20. I mean, I could read this whole chapter. This is what God says, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. If there ever was a time, Jason, you don't comment on the word of God, that's it. It speaks for itself, does it not? God knows. Beloved, that is what true darkness is. A life set apart from God, distinct from him. That is terrifying. A life of disorder and devastation. Christian, that should be us. We knew darkness, right? We knew it. We knew death and we walked in it. Is that not true, beloved? We knew darkness. We walked in it. But we know it no longer. We know it no longer. I pray that gives you hope today. We know God. Westmount, brothers and sisters, we know God. We know light. We know God. Why? Because another took on darkness for us, right? Another took on darkness. Remember this. It was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You know, as he said that, he bore the yoke of darkness for you and I. He bore the yoke of sin for you and I. Every devastating thing we've done with our blood-stained hands, he took it on at the cross. And he bore the felt darkness for you and me, Christian. But after darkness, after darkness, verse 24, or chapter 24, Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, the body once covered in death and darkness. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, and listen to this, two men stood by them in what? Dazzling apparel. That's the blindness you want, right? To be blinded by the light. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. After darkness, light, light. Father, we thank you for that truth, that resurrection truth, after darkness, light. God, you took on the felt darkness, the darkness that Pharaoh deserved, Egypt, and certainly us, but we are spared in your great mercy from that. And God, we consider our refuge is indeed in your son and in the work of your son and what he did for us and in him alone. So God, we thank you. May we walk out this week in that great mercy, that great truth, and be encouraged by the hope to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.